Because we have so many faces that weren't here last week, uh, I'm going to do a little bit more review than I would normally do to cover what I we talked about last week as we introduced this uh, first part of this section. But turn with me to Matthew 13. We're looking at verses 53 to 58. And uh, I want to read this passage and then we will review. It says, Now it happened that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. And he came to his hometown, began teaching them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they were taking offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. I told you we get the theme of this section from that last statement, because of their unbelief. We, we need to understand the power of unbelief. Uh, as believing saves the soul and enables the power of God to be released on behalf of the person to its fullness, so unbelief halts the full release of the power of God. Unbelief dams up the flood of God's blessing. The power of unbelief stops God from doing what he would do otherwise. We don't often think about that. We know that God can do whatever he chooses to do at any time he chooses to do it, but we rarely think about the fact that God responds to rejection and unbelief by limiting what he would otherwise do. Uh, that's what we will see in the next couple of chapters in this section of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, so as we come to this section, you should understand that although Jesus continued to teach many additional truths and reinforced and illustrated those that he already taught, these eight parables that we studied here in Matthew 13 uh, mark the end of Jesus' basic instruction to the disciples. And the two most important parables in this group for the disciples to understand were the parable of the soils and the parable of the wheat and the tares. Those parables make it clear that there would only be some who would truly believe and that for the present period of the kingdom, the saved and the unsaved would live side by side. Uh, and so the apostles and everyone following after them as witnesses for Christ would carry on their ministry in a time of both belief and unbelief, of both good and evil. And so beginning in verse 53 and continuing all the way to chapter 16, verse 4, there are eight incidents in the life of our Lord that correspond to and demonstrate the truths presented in these two parables. And the major mark of this section in Matthew's Gospel is the king's rejection. As he and his disciples move out into the harvest, they encounter those who illustrate the kingdom as he described it in the parables. It is a time of faith and unbelief, of believing and not believing. Uh, and having said in chapter 13, expect rejection, expect unbelief, expect here and there, there will be some who will believe, and there will be good soil along with evil soil, there will be hard soil, there will be good wheat along with evil tares uh, growing together. Jesus is now illustrating that as they move out. Uh, and what I find interesting is that there were eight interactions with various groups, and of those eight, we're going to see that only two were good soil. Uh, that's the same ratio as in the parable of the soils. It was one out of four. 
and here two out of eight. Uh, that's the same. And so Jesus had taught the disciples that the response to the gospel in the present age would vary just like the soils in the parable were different. And they got to witness that truth illustrated in the lives of the people that Jesus encountered. In those situations, both the power of belief and the power of unbelief are revealed. And so we looked at the, started looking at the first incident, uh, but before we did that, we first looked at his departure from Capernaum. Notice verse 53. Now it happened that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. Uh, that there refers to the village of Capernaum. Uh, he'd been ministering with, in, in Capernaum as a base for about a year, and now he left. He departed after giving these parables. Early in chapter 13, uh, he spoke to the people in parables, and they were hidden from them. They couldn't understand them. They were revealed only to the disciples because the people were unwilling to believe. Back in chapter 11, verses 23 and 24, Jesus had spoke of Capernaum, and he said that you'll descend to Hades. He said, because if the miracles that occurred in Sodom had occurred in you, it would have remained to this, uh, if, if the miracles that had occurred in Sodom that you saw, it would still be here. And he says, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So Jesus pronounced a curse on Capernaum. And so when it says that very little statement at the end of verse 53, he departed from there. That's when Capernaum's history ended and God's damning judgment began. Uh, it was the beginning of the end. He never went back except in passing. Uh, he never reestablished a base there. Capernaum had its opportunity. He had come to that city, demonstrated power that could only be interpreted as from God, and now it was over. So what happened next? Where did Jesus go next? Well, he returned. Verse 54 says he went back to Nazareth. It says, and he came to his hometown. That's Nazareth. It's about 30 miles away from Capernaum. And he had lived for the first 30 years of his life there, ever since he was a child, which makes what occurred there even more amazing. Uh, it says he began teaching them in their synagogue. It wasn't the first time he did that. Uh, let's turn over to Luke 4 uh, for a while. Uh, this is an incident that occurred approximately a year later. I mean, a year earlier. A year earlier in Nazareth. Uh, Luke 4, we're going to start there in verse 14. It says that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he was teaching in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And then look at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. At the dawn of the Sabbath morning, Jesus would have gone to the synagogue, which had been a part of his life for 30 years while he lived in Nazareth. And he would have taken his seat and seen many familiar faces, uh, people he knew so very, very well, even in terms of the human viewpoint. And they were the same, but he wasn't because in the intervening time since he had been gone, he had become famous. And in those days, if you were considered to be a famous or well-known rabbi, and you went to a synagogue, you were invited to teach. And so he became the speaker, the teaching rabbi that day. And as was the standard custom, it says at the end of verse 16, he stood up to read. And verses 17 to 19 tell us, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. 
And he opened the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And verse 20 says, He closed the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Everyone in the place are staring at him, transfixed to hear what he's going to say. And verse 21 tells us, it says, And he began to say then, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what he's saying is the Messiah is here. He's in your midst. This, this is fulfilled. This is a banner day above all days in the history of Israel. This is the day when the promise is fulfilled, the greatest day in all history. And it's clear that at first they didn't understand the implications of what he was saying because verse 22 says, And all were speaking well of him and marveling at the gracious words which were coming forth from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? In other words, they're saying, Isn't this guy Joseph the carpenter's son? Uh, how did he become so articulate? And then Jesus goes for the throat. Look at verse 23. And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard took place at Capernaum, do also here in your hometown as well. In other words, he's saying, I know what you guys are going to say. You're going to say, if you're such a good physician and you heal so many people, let's see it. you do it right here now. Heal yourself. Uh, in other words, don't tell us stories about what you've done. Do something right here. Whatever we heard took place in Capernaum, do also here in your hometown as well. So he tells them in verse 24, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. They had already given evidence of that when they said, is, this, uh, is not this Joseph's son? They're saying, he can't be anything too special. He's just the carpenter's kid. Um, and then Jesus really throws them a gut punch. Look at verses 25 to 27. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. In other words, he says, hey, there were a lot of Jewish widows in Israel, and God never sent a prophet to any of them. But he sent Elijah to a non-Jew. You know, can you imagine him standing in a Jewish synagogue and saying that? He's defending the right he had to minister as the light of the nations. In Matthew 4, he said he'd come to be a light to the nations. And he's reaching out to the nations, the people who were not God's people. And so he says to these fellow Nazarenes, look, God's not going to do anything special for you. Why not? Because of their resistant, hard-hearted unbelief. God doesn't cast his pearls before swine. And in verse 27, he says, let me tell you about another Gentile, Naaman the Syrian. Now Naaman, in his day, he, he, was, he would be compared to, you could compare him to the Hamas terrorist of today. He, he was the Hamas terrorist of his time. Uh, he regularly led Syrian raids into Israel to loot, pillage, and capture Jewish women to be slaves. Uh, but God cleansed Nathan, Naaman's uh, leprosy after he humbly submitted to obey Elisha's 
uh, Elijah's instructions uh, that he thought at first made no sense. Uh, Jesus is saying, I, I haven't come to bend to your provincial hard-heartedness. I've come to be the Savior of the world to those who will hear and listen. Well, verse 28 says, and this is where we stopped last week, and all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. To claim to be the Messiah and to say that you come like Elijah and Elisha and others and not to your own hometown and ignore them, that was the height of indifference. That was intolerable to them. So verses 29 and 30 say, And they stood up and drove him out of the city and led him to the edge of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. They tried to kill him. That's how it was in his own hometown. The town where he grew up and lived and worked for 30 years. They tried to kill him. They were hard, hard soil. They wanted entertainment by Jesus and benefits for themselves from the miracle worker, but they didn't want conviction of sin and a message of salvation by Jesus the Messiah. So he left there, and he made his home in Capernaum 30 miles away. And now a year goes by, and now we're back in Matthew 13. And his desire is to return and give them a second chance. Another opportunity for Nazareth. Another time for that narrow, prejudiced, proud, conceited town. And he went back fearlessly, boldly, courageously, graciously, and lovingly to the same people who had tried to kill him a year before. And verse 54, Matthew 13, says, And he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get his, this wisdom and these miraculous powers? He went right back into the teeth of the storm. Right back into the synagogue. And he taught them. Don't you wish you could have heard Jesus teach? I know we have his words in the Bible, but there is so much involved in terms of voice intonation and style of speaking that I would love to have been able to hear him. Uh, his ability to respond so directly and magnificently to the Pharisees when they tried to trick him and how people must have been absolutely spellbound when they uh, heard him. Well, let me try to paint a picture of this situation for you. <clears throat> the people would all be sitting there, and frankly, synagogue worship was very much like a boring church service today. Uh, it, it was just like many boring experiences people have today in many ways. They, they just did it out of routine. Uh, so one of the ways they decided to make it more enjoyable and to alleviate some of their boredom through the years was to have the teacher, the one with all the information, whisper it into the ear of someone else who was a far more gifted and interesting speaker and have him say it to the congregation. Uh, you know, many teachers can be boring, can't they? Uh, all of us who've been to college or seminary have experienced some. I mean, through the years, I've wondered why you bother to show up here sometimes. There's been times I thought to myself, boy, I'm boring myself today. Uh, I can't imagine how they feel. Um, 
but you all have always been very gracious with your comments, and, and I want to know you that you to know that I appreciate them greatly. But you know, there are some teachers who, when you leave, you say, "Well, the content was good, but it was hard to stay awake when he was talking. He just droned on and on and on." And so the Jews' solution was to find the teacher who had the ability to understand the scriptures and then have him whisper it into the ear of another guy who was a great orator, a charismatic speaker, and have him repeat it to the crowd. And during the time of Christ, that guy was called the Mathurgeman, okay, uh, or the interpreter. Uh, another name for him came sort of later on in the process was the Amora, uh, which meant speaker. And because the scriptures were written in Hebrew and the rabbis spoke in Hebrew uh, and most of the common people neither read nor understood Hebrew, the Mathurgeman would translate the Hebrew into Aramaic, the language of the common man. And he stood beside the teaching rabbi. Remember, the rabbi is sitting. He's the teacher, so he's sitting in his chair. Uh, the seat of Moses, as they called it. And the Mathurgeman would stand beside him, and the teaching rabbi would whisper to the, to the Mathurgeman, and then the Mathurgeman would supposedly interpret what the rabbi said. But they became known for their flamboyance in giving the interpretation since they were excellent orators. It's not a bad idea in some places. Uh, Alfred Edersheim, the great Jewish scholar and historian, describes the Mathurgeman as characterized by vanity, self-conceit, and silliness. He writes this, quote, As he stood beside the rabbi, he usually thought far more, far more of attracting attention and applause to himself than of benefiting his hearers, end quote. Uh, in other words, he was putting on a show. Uh, Edersheim gives the qualifications for a Mathurgeman as follows, quote, he had to have a good figure and form. In other words, he had to look good. Uh, he had to have a pleasant expression, a melodious voice. His words were to come like those of a bride to a bridegroom. He had to have fluency. Uh, speech as sweet as honey and pleasant as milk and honey, finely sifted through fine flour. His diction was to be richly adorned like a bride on her wedding day. He was to have sufficient confidence never to be disoriented. And above all, he had to be conciliatory and avoid being too personal, end quote. So that's what they usually had, vanity, self-conceit, and silliness. They were trying to keep people's attention in the meaningless routine that was so much a part of their religious life. But Jesus comes along and he sits down. He doesn't have a Mathurgeman there. He explains it himself. He didn't need any hot shot. Uh, he's he taught in Aramaic so that everyone could understand. He just overthrew the normal procedure and he taught and they were astonished. Have you ever wondered why his teaching was so amazing? Well, basically, it was characterized by four things that we find in the New Testament. Uh, if you want to know why he was an effective speaker, here's, here are the keys. Number one, he was authoritative. He was authoritative. 
In Matthew 7, 28-29, it says that when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Luke 4.32 says they were amazed at his teaching for his message was with authority. He was authoritative when he spoke, which means he spoke with powerful conviction. It's very important. It bothers me when people preach and teach and they seem indifferent or unsure about it. Uh, Pastors ought to speak with authority, not by saying you need to do what I say, but rather here's what God's word says. Uh, And whenever Jesus spoke, he spoke with conviction that carries authority. Second reason Jesus' teaching was so effective was that he had knowledge. He had knowledge. In John 7.15, it tells us the Jews then were marveling, saying, How has this man become learned, not having been educated? You know, there's nothing worse than someone talking about something about which they have absolutely no knowledge uh, but trying to bluff their way through it. I, I worked with a guy like that. He would expound on almost any topic that came up in conversation as though he was an expert on it, but everyone knew he wasn't. He just tried to bluff his way through everything, and in a very short time, no one wanted to listen to him, even though he spoke about it, even when he spoke about a subject that he actually knew something about. Um, but Jesus had knowledge. He had an incredible vast knowledge of all the truth of God. So he was a man who had both authority and knowledge. Third, he had grace in his speech. Warmth, gentleness, love, sensitivity. Colossians 4, 6 tells us, let your words always be with grace seasoned with salt. And in Luke 4, 22, it says that the crowd in the synagogue was marveling at the gracious words that were coming forth from his lips. Fourth, his speech was unique. He didn't stand up and say what all the other rabbis had said. In fact, he said what no one else had said. Uh, He was unique. He didn't say the obvious. Uh, He said what wasn't obvious. He cut through the traditions to the stuff they'd never seen and never heard. Now, pastors today have the completed word of God that they need to stick to. And they should not be continually trying to find something unique in its message in order to impress their audience. I don't know about Frank's seminary experience, but when I went to seminary, I I met a lot of guys like that. They were constantly trying to find something buried in the text that no one else had ever seen before. Uh, Listen, it's been almost 2,000 years since the scriptures were completed. And during that time, they have been searched thoroughly by far greater minds than mine or most other pastors. So rather than trying to find something unique that no one else has found, we need to stick to the text and open it up so that the average person in the congregation can understand it. Uh, Now that may mean that we will explain things that might be otherwise overlooked because most people in the church haven't studied the original languages, but we're not called to find previously undiscovered points of theology by applying some strange kind of allegorical interpretation to the biblical text. That is not the kind of unique teaching that pastors 
are to do today. If pastors today would stick to the text of Scripture and help people understand it so that they can grow and change to be like Christ, folks, that kind of teaching will be considered unique. Uh, think about it. That's what makes Lakeside unique as a church, isn't it? Uh, the pastors here are committed to expository teaching of the Word to help you grow in Christ's likeness. Uh, you don't find a lot of that in churches today. So the, the power that Jesus had when he taught in Nazareth was the same that he had when he taught anywhere else. Uh, it was the power of a tremendous conviction that came through his authoritative speaking. It was that great wealth of knowledge that when he opened his mouth, the truth of God came flooding out. And truth has its own impact. Uh, it was also the graciousness of the way he said it. The tremendous irresistible power and authority when it was said and the very uniqueness of the message itself. So if you want to study to be an effective Bible teacher, those are the things you need to have. Now, what was the response of all these people in Nazareth to Jesus? What was their reaction to this one who was authoritative, knowledgeable, gracious, and unique? Well, they were astonished. They were blown away by him. They were astounded. They were amazed. But it didn't change their hearts. It didn't change their hearts. In fact, look down at verse 58. It says, And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. His wisdom and marvelous powers didn't lead to anything. That just proves the point that you can be amazed at Jesus. You can be astounded at Jesus. You can be astonished. But that doesn't mean anything if your heart is filled with unbelief. So then how do we explain that? How can you be unbelieving when you've just heard him speak? How can you be unbelieving when, a, when the mass of miracles that he has done is just so obvious? Let me tell you how. That can be your response because unbelief is a choice. Unbelief is a choice. It is an act of the will. Unbelief is something you determine to do. You decide you will not believe. Unbelief is the hard ground, the stony ground. It's not like the man who told Jesus, I do believe, help my unbelief. In other words, Lord, I'm trying to believe, help me the rest of the way. No, the Nazarenes were characterized by hard unbelief. Theirs were the hearts that said it doesn't matter what the evidence is. We don't and won't believe. Now this second encounter by Jesus with his former neighbors in Nazareth teaches us four important truths about unbelief. I want us to examine each one of these as we go through the text so that we see the power of unbelief. Uh, this explains how you can watch him grow up and work in your town for 30 years. Marvel at his incredible teaching. Know he has performed miracle upon miracle that could never be refuted and still not believe. And it also explains why people today can hear the gospel clearly explained and even sit in church every Sunday, in the chairs of Lakeside Community Chapel every Sunday, and still not believe. So let's see how unbelief works. First of all, verse 54, unbelief blurs the obvious. 
Unbelief blurs the obvious. Look at verse 54. And he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Now that's an absolutely stupid question. It's a dumb question. I mean, if the answer isn't obvious, nothing is obvious. Where do you think supernatural miracles come from? Where do you think divine wisdom comes from? But you see, it's the nature of unbelief to make the choice to reject and then blur out what is obvious. When I was in seminary, Dr. John Hanna, one of the foremost scholars on historical theology alive today, assigned us to read a theology book written by a group of liberal theologians. Uh, it was awful. Uh, and that's exactly what they did in their, in their writings. They, they would deny the truth or simply eliminate it altogether, and then they would concoct some impossible scheme to explain away everything, and then they would, put, they would sit back and pat themselves on the back and commend their intellectualism. And we had to read the book before we went to the first class. And so when we met for the first time, Dr. Hannah went over the syllabus, which never mentioned the book. And then he asked us if we had any questions. And one of my good friends asked him, if, we're, if we aren't going to use that awful book, why did you assign it to us to read? And Dr. Hannah's response was, I want you to know how dark it is out there. These are the people and the kind of ideas which are competing for the minds of the people in your congregations. He certainly made his point. Uh, for many years, I kept the book. I wrote in the front of it that it was heresy and I disagreed with everything in it, but I kept it tucked away on an upper shelf in my library where no one else but me could reach it. Uh, but a few years ago, I decided I, I threw it away because I didn't want someone who may not be as theologically astute uh, to find it in my library someday after I die and decide to read it to find out why I disagreed with it and then be misled by its heresy. So I tossed it in a trash can. I did not donate it to anybody. But that's what hard soil unbelievers do. They look at Jesus' miracles, they listen to his words, and then ask, how did he become such an incredible teacher? Where did he get his supernatural power? And the entire time they're denying the obvious. Nicodemus knew where Jesus got his power and authority. John 3 tells us that when he went to Jesus, he said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. It was obvious. He did miracles all over the place. And these people had seen some of them. In fact, some of them or one of their family members may have experienced healing by Jesus. Verse 58, he says he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. And what that tells me is he did a few, but not many. Mark's account verifies that. Regardless, he had done many miracles within walking distance of that area. You can walk from Nazareth to Capernaum in less than a day. Uh, and the word was all over Galilee. The lame were walking, the blind were seeing, the deaf were hearing, and believe me, they were telling everybody about it. And so there was no question about what he was doing. In fact, 
They even asked the question, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? So they didn't deny his incredible teaching or his miracles. Just let, let me add a footnote there for those of you who enjoy apologetics. This is one of the greatest apologetics for the deity of Christ on the pages of Scripture. It is the fact that these people who are not his friends, who are not his disciples, it's not some Christian church that affirms that he did these miracles. These people are his enemies. And over and over and over again in the Gospels, it is his enemies who acknowledge his wisdom and miracles. It was the same with the Pharisees and Sadducees in Jerusalem. They didn't try to refute that he did them. They just illogically and blasphemously tried to claim he did them by Satan's power. They couldn't deny them because there were hundreds and thousands of such miracles. So many that John 21, 25 says there were also many other things Jesus did, which if they were written one after the other, I suppose even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John 20, 30 says many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So basically, eliminating most disease and disability in the land of Israel and teaching profoundly on every conceivable subject related to life, death, eternity, God, man, heaven, and hell, and over and over and over again in the Gospel of John, Jesus' words my, says, my words and my works, my words and my works are sufficient to prove to you who I am. John 5, 36, but the witness I have is greater than the witness of John for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. John 8, 37, he says, I know that you are Abraham's seed, yet you are seeking to kill me because my word has no place in you. A few verses later, in verse 43, he says, Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. John 10, 37, 38, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and continue knowing that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Now let me ask you a basic question. What is the one thing that a Jew knew came from God? Wisdom. You see, they had the Old Testament scriptures. And Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 111.10, The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 15.33, The fear of Yahweh is the, dis is the discipline leading to wisdom. Isaiah 11.12, The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. I mean, if they knew anything at all, they knew that. They were weaned on that. They knew that wisdom comes from God. They knew the fear of the Lord to be the beginning of wisdom, and yet they asked the question, where did this man get this wisdom? I mean, he taught about regeneration. He taught them about worship, sin, salvation, judgment, heaven, hell, fasting, praying, giving, marriage, divorce, murder, hate, anger, love, stealing, retaliation, adultery, lying, and swearing. All of that in the Sermon on the Mount. He taught them about loving God, of loving their, their, 
friends, loving their enemies, loving their family, movie, mo money, and possessions. He taught them about false doctrine and false teachers. He taught them about the Sabbath. He taught them about law, obedience, discipleship, grace, blasphemy. He taught them about signs and miracles. He taught them about life and death, tradition, humility, pride, persecution, the church, light and life, freedom and bondage, faith and unbelief, evil and Satan. He taught them about hypocrisy. He taught them about repentance. He taught them about election. He taught them about service, about children, about the beginning and end of the world, and about eternal rewards and eternal damnation. He taught them everything they needed to know. And they knew it was wisdom. No man could ever catch him in his words. When the Pharisees would come to him, they'd go away scratching their heads. And yet these people asked the stupid question, where did he get this wisdom? Don't fool yourself. They knew where it came from. They knew it came from God. They knew that, but it was the blurred stupidity of unbelief. Listen carefully. If a person says, look, I need more evidence. I want more proof. That's not the issue. You see, they had all they needed. They just wouldn't make the connection. It was not a question of evidence. You'll find that when you're witnessing to some family member or friend, and they keep saying, well, prove it to me. Prove the Bible is true. How do I know that Jesus Christ is really God? How do I know what you're saying is true? Prove it. And no matter what you say, they just keep wanting more and more and more evidence. Listen, a lack of evidence is not the issue. What is the issue? Here's the answer, John 3, 18 to 20. This is critical. You must understand this. It'll help you in your evangelism. It says, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So you have someone who hasn't believed. Now watch this, verses 19 and 20. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. You know why they don't believe? It isn't a lack of evidence, it's love of evil. Keep that in mind when you witness to people and they keep asking you and asking you and asking you for more proof and more proof and more proof. In the vast majority of cases, that is not the issue. Now, there are some who truly seek and they truly want to be seeing the evidence and they'll respond to that. But you see, evidence affirms the faith of those who already believe. But those who are hard-hearted and resistant and are continually demanding more and more and more of that kind of evidence, that isn't the issue. And sometimes people run back to their pastor and they say, how can I prove to my friend that Jesus is God? Uh, or how can I prove the Bible is true? They just keep asking for more. Folks, evidence is not the issue. It's not lack of evidence. It's love of evil. You know what the problem was in Nazareth? They loved their sin and they didn't want Jesus Christ at all. That's why Matthew tells us back in chapter 12, verse 38, that when the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus, what did they ask him for? We want to see a sign from you. What did he say to them? 
An evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it. In other words, your problem isn't that you need proof. Your problem is that you love sin. That's your problem. That's the issue. Unbelief blurs the obvious. That leads us to a second point, which we have a few minutes, so we'll go ahead and start. Probably won't finish it. But unbelief builds up the irrelevant. Unbelief builds up the irrelevant. Look at verses 55 and 56. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Have you ever had an occasion to witness to someone who's resistant and unbelieving after they blurt out what is patently obvious in the presentation of the gospel message and willingly refuse to see what is clear, they'll inevitably attach themselves to something that is totally irrelevant and press that to divert you from the real issue. Perhaps you invited an unbelieving family member or friend to church, and later when you're talking to them about the gospel message, you start getting comments such as, well, the people there weren't very friendly. Or, that preacher just went on far too long. Or maybe they were offended by something that was said, and they say, I'll never go back there again. That preacher made disparaging remarks about such and such a group. Or as someone once told me about uh, their family member who they brought here to Lakeside and the family member's response was, there's not enough rah-rah there. It's just so boring. And they build up this big smoke screen about things that are irrelevant when the real issue is, what about your eternal soul? What about the claims of Jesus Christ? What about the gospel of the kingdom? It's not, what about the music or the length of the sermon or the way the pastor is dressed or whatever? But you see, inevitably, unbelief diverts itself off of the main issue. It is settled on self-justification, and so it moves to that which is irrelevant. And you can tell a true seeker from one that isn't. If you present the gospel to a true seeker and they say, tell me more about that, tell me more. How does that happen? How do I make that my own? How do I become a Christian? Oh, this is good. This is wonderful. I know I'm a sinner. Please tell me how to be forgiven. But the person who doesn't believe any of it and just wants to divert you off from that, from the real issue at hand and get you off into all kinds of other stuff. And they'll ask you things like, do you really believe God made the world in seven days when science has proven that it took billions of years? Or do you really believe in that virgin birth or any one of many other issues? And because they're theological questions, many Christians get diverted off into those arguments and, and trying to explain those things and they never get back to the real issue, which is the gospel. And they, those people are doing that to avoid the issue and to justify why they don't believe it. And these Jews in Nazareth were the same way. And we'll discuss it further next week. So, any other comments or questions uh, from anyone before we conclude? Yes, ma'am. Would you characterize the question, well, what about all of the people who have never heard the gospel? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. That is... That is one of the 
perhaps one of the most common diversions. Well, what about the the un, the people in the darkest parts of the jungle of South America who never heard the name of Jesus? Yeah, yeah, or somewhere else. So, uh, yeah, that's probably the most common diversion that there is out there. Yes. Yeah, when we when I taught on the the doctrine of hell, uh, where Jesus talked about that, um, yeah, there are degrees of punishment in hell, and the greater exposure to the truth one has and yet rejects it, the greater the punishment in hell. That was the whole thing he's saying about Capernaum and Sodom. You know, uh, Capernaum had exposure to to the truth. Um, how does that, so in their mind, and it's, a, I mean, they're unsaved, I get it, but how would you witness to them? I would say, what I and I have said this in the past, well, that really, you know, that's not the issue that we're, is important right now. That's a theological discussion for another time and place. Let's focus on this issue right here, which is the most important issue, is your relationship to Jesus Christ and the sin that is blocking you from that relationship with him and how that is forgiven. I, I literally tell them that to divert them away from that. I've done it many times. Frank, you have anything to add on that? Yeah. The simple saying is that people are, unsafe people are always judged according to the life they have, not the life they don't have. Yeah. According to the life they have, whatever that may be, that's how they will be judged. The more light you have and you reject, the greater the judgment will be. Close us with prayer, please, Frank. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the gospel.